I'm here to talk to you about the very exciting drinks index sustainability sorry drinks industry sustainability index trends report. It is a bit of a mouthful. You're right. I'm sorry about that, Stuart. I couldn't think of a snappier title, so I, I um, will have to think how we can shorten it. Anyway, but uh, no, it's really really exciting uh, to be here to share it with you. I'm really grateful to CNC Group too for for being part of this journey and making it happen. Um, so. Just to say a little bit about me, I'm Amy Fetzer, I'm Head of Research and Analysis for Footprint Media Group, um, and I get to work on lots of exciting projects um, within the hospitality and food service industry and, uh, and in the drinks industry, and um, I was just it was really great to have a project that really looked at the drinks industry on its own, because it was something that you know, hasn't happened um, as much, so it was really wonderful to have that opportunity. Um, so why now? Aha, it's working. Um, so obviously, as uh, Nick and Stuart mentioned, you know, 2020 is a crucial year for climate change. The climate emergency is really beginning to feel like one. And, we, you know, every time you turn on the TV, you know, you, know, you see somebody like David Attenborough talking about the urgency of acting now. He was saying that last week, you know, this higher ever temperatures being recorded, the Australian bushfires, you know, you, know, you cannot get away from the reality of the situation. Um, and, you know, so now more and more stakeholders are absolutely demanding action. You know, our customers, our teams, our investors, and of course, ourselves. And, you know, taking action on sustainability and really embracing it within an organisation is actually the only way to safeguard our commercial and our personal futures. Now, as Stuart mentioned, CNC are on their own journey to embed sustainability um, into their business. You know, they're reducing water, energy emissions year on year, lightweight in packaging. They've got an ambitious plan to be carbon neutral by 2020. Um, and the great news is, is, you know, they're not alone. Like everybody else in the room here, everybody's, you know, on a different part of the journey. And so what... Um, so what we've done today is we've done a bit of a deep dive into the trends that are deriving the, uh, the drinks industry sector and looking at how it is responding to the climate crisis. Um, so the idea of the, uh, the report is that it offers actionable insights into the innovations and the best practice that's happening across the drinks trade. And it's identifying the air opportunities in the areas most in need of urgent attention. Um, so it's not really just a trend support, it's a bit of a, you know, a roadmap as well, a roadmap to the future. We haven't got all the answers, and we know that. But the great news is, is you know, there's all these brilliant minds in this room here today, but out there in the industry too. And we're really hoping by bringing together these examples of best practice, highlighting the areas urgently in need of attention, and sort of really directing everyone's focus to some of the biggest issues. You know, you guys, like Stuart said, can get together, make things happen. So we're hoping this is a really useful tool in your arsenal to help you do more because you, know, you guys are our future and we know that you can make a real difference. <clears throat> so uh, how did we put together the report? Uh, so what we did is we interviewed thought leaders from across the industry. So we spoke to brewers and software manufacturers and associations and pub groups and some of the drinks industry's biggest brands um, to some of the disruptive new players and we also did a load of desk-based research to see what was out there already what reports were out there what was on people's websites and we also used our footprint insights so we did use things like footprint forums um the drinks sustainable drinks awards and other deep industry engagement as i said i have the privilege of, of working on lots of reports for footprint so i get to have conversations with people throughout the industry all the time about trends about what's going on and the challenges they're facing and the barriers and in, through all this uh, research and interviewing, we came up with these uh, eight categories of, of the, uh, the, the key issues within sustainability in the drinks industry. In the industry. Um, and what we did is we also ranked each one to see where the industry was. And unfortunately, it didn't score tremendously well. The overall average was 4.8. Um, but we, we did give each... Uh, Oh, sorry, I've got to do it twice. So um, we did give each category a, a score. And um, as we go through, you'll get some insights and a bit of hints and explanation about how, you know, why these scores might be what they are. Um, but you can kind of uh, see them there. And obviously, if you turn to the back of your report, they're all, they're all listed in there too. <clears throat> 
So, um, so the first section is strategy and culture, and um, we so so for each section, I've just pulled out. There's obviously like enormous amounts. It's a massive report. You've seen there's enormous amounts in the report. I'm not going to take you through every single point. I'm just going to pull out a few key points from each one. But the drinks industry that are leading, and it's really interesting because again, this has come up in the conversations I've had uh, with some of you in the room tonight. The ones that are leading and the ones that are having the biggest impact are those that have clearly identified sustainability strategies, which have been developed through careful understanding of the science, their stakeholders, their supply chains, and a full range of their business impacts. And they've not only taken this information and had it as their sort of high-level strategy, they've also permeated it through their culture. And they've translated it to employees to enable them to understand their role, not only in helping the company to meet ambitious targets, but also to inspire them to feel empowered to see and to do more and to continually challenge those around them to do the same. Um, so for the drinks industry, progress is really underpinned by setting sustain incorporating sustainability into strategy and culture through setting um, challenging targets and harnessing collaboration, ensuring employee, eng ensuring employee engagement, building brand value and engaging the supply chain. Um, uh, as part of our interviewing process, we spoke to Martin at CNC Group, and this is, you know, this is a really good um, description of how people are now beginning to really change the way they're thinking about sustainability. Like uh, Stuart said, it's not this add-on anymore. It's becoming a very core part of, of uh, high-level strategic thinking, but it's also something that we're trying to get into the, the actual nuts and bolts of everyday operations. Um, So uh, I'm really lucky, as I said, I get to speak to lots of people through my role, um, interviewing people. And, and there's always, I'm, I'm also really lucky because sustainability is something that people are typically really passionate about. So it's usually a very fun process. And I get to ask gazillions of questions. But this, um, this interviewing process, um, I did have this really wonderful gentleman called Killian Stokes. He's the co-founder of Moye Coffee, who definitely... Uh, was one of my most passionate and enthusiastic um, interviewees. And, and one of the things that came across, and it, he said really well, it was echoed by a lot of other people as well, but this idea that the supply chain is your brand. Um, he basically said that needs to be appreciated by drinks companies. Every bit of your supply chain is important. Your ingredients, your farmers, the land, your water, your manufacturing, shipping and sales. You can't outsource the problem. If it's in your supply chain, you have to own it and you need to believe in sharing the value throughout the supply chain. So it's something that, you know, it's a, it's a real shift that we're seeing. Um, and so there's no longer any excuses. If it's in your product that you're selling, just because it isn't coming from your site or your factory doesn't mean you don't need to tackle it. And of course, there's so many different components and so many of the different products, but it's the idea that you've got to be looking and working with the supply chain to being starting to address that and being honest about where you are in the journey in those conversations. Um, the next point is set challenging targets. And um, this has got to be a... Oh, hang on. Sorry. This is where the, the two screens is going to get me. Um, so the first, so we've got to set the challenging targets, and that's across industry and supply chains. Uh, I was having a conversation earlier, with, uh, which I think came up at ED today. It's got to be in line with the science. Um, and we've got to act on evidence and not emotion. You know, it's something that came up throughout the research. And again, a lot of you touched on tonight is, you know, things like packaging, having a really big resonance with customers. But we've got to make sure that the decisions made when you're swapping one, one uh, material for another is based on the science using LCAs and other types of, uh, uh, of methodologies to check and also being prepared to be flexible as the science and infrastructure changes because things are developing all the time so when you know when you look at you know the waste infrastructure now you might make a decision based on what's happening now but in two years time you know the material that is best for your product might be different because of, of the way that uh, that material can now be recycled um, so what's interesting is uh, Coke did a materiality assessment and they, across the whole business with all the different stakeholders, they asked, what are the challenges the industry will face in the next 25 years? And then they set themselves really clear targets and pathways to achieve them. So, you know, you've got to sit there and you've got to look at that and, and feed it all through. 
it's interesting, again, this idea of linking it with the science. When I went to AB InBev's front page, it was a big banner. How are we supporting the UN global goals? You know, Perno Ricard, they've got four pillars. They're each linked to two SDGs, and they've got 30 targets within that. And then they can then use them to translate them to staff to what's being done and why and how it impacts them. By the way, I must say, as part of this research, we looked at lots, what lots of people are doing, but we didn't rank the companies themselves. So obviously, we're highlighting things that we think that they have done that are really useful. But we're not saying, just because I've mentioned it, we think they're the best company in the world. They will have some great things about them, but we didn't index the companies per se. Um, so, uh, so the next thing, and, and again, this is something... Uh, you know, that Stuart talked about is that collaboration is key. This is something that the food service industry has really embraced over the last, you know, five years or so. And it's something that the drinks industry is really beginning to wake up to as well. You know, and it's got to be across industry and across supply chains. You know, everybody we talk to, Carlsberg, Perno, Ricard, Mitchells and Butler, CNC, everyone, you know, they all said it's all about the collaboration. They're massive challenges, but together we can... Um, start to solve them um, and uh, and so some of the things that uh, you know here's a great quote from um from david from mitchells and butlers who was talking about and again you know these are just examples of what people said to us you know we want to work with suppliers that have got a sustainability mindset it's part of our tender process part of our supplier engagement process ab and bev has a portal which allows suppliers to discuss sustainability and helps them benchmark best practices and that also helps suppliers to share ideas and challenges and find cost-effective solutions. Innocent's got their Hero Supplier Program, which is a framework for suppliers to collect and report data and how they're performing. These types of mechanisms are massively useful. And again, you know, you don't necessarily really need to reinvent the wheel. There are lots of existing structures that are out there. But it's the whole idea of bringing people together, allowing you to benchmark, allowing you to find out what's happening and how you can tackle these challenges together. Um, another thing that came up in many different forms was employees and employee action um, and how employees are always um, questioning and asking and challenging and wanting to do, do more. Um, this was you know, creating real industry pressure within the drinks industry. And, you know, there's another lovely quote that came from um, David where he said, everyone talks to their friends about the job and the company they work for. And it's a source of pride if you can say, well, actually, we're doing X, Y, and Z, which is all about our sustainability credentials. We get a lot of pull from the team. I mean, that was the same thing that I just had a, a conversation uh, with you about Heineken and how, you know, choosing the issues to focus and communicate on the issues that matter to your employees is really a great way to get traction and a great way for businesses like Heineken to make sure that they are, you know, addressing the issues their employees care about and telling them what's happening so they can then communicate that. Um, and feel really good about where they're working. So this is the two the, the, uh, the two key things are that employees want agency and action, and they have to be employed empowered to to do something with that. So the important thing is is to get those the strategic goals, translate them to the um, that people's job roles. I you know one way to do that really effectively is through you know actual job descriptions and KPIs but also to translate that people to people in a meaningful way for their specific job roles, because one set of messaging isn't going to work for everyone, to make sure that everybody knows what it means and that they can actually come with their suggestions and their ideas, because that is absolutely crucial to all of this, because the people at the front line, they're seeing, you know, that the brewery's got water all over the floor. They, they, you know, they see the issues and they will have so many great ideas um, to tackle them. Um, so the next uh, topic was packaging, and obviously um, I thought I'd start with this little example from Garçon Wines. So they reimagined, you know, how could they reduce the uh, emissions of their product? So they created a, a bottle that was 100% recycled PET. It's 40% spatially smaller than a normal um, round glass bottle. It's 80% lighter, and two and a half times more bottles go onto each packet pallet. And I think it's something like that you can get 10 bottles in a crate that used to go in four. So it's, you know, it's, it's something where you say, sometimes you can look at something and say, is it that I need to lightweight the bottle that I have? Or do I need to look at reimagining 
my packaging and my eco design. So this is just a great example of somebody who's tried to find a way to, to get around that challenge. And it will be different for every business and every product, of course. But found a really brilliant solution that's win-win-win on so many different criteria. Um, so when I spoke to Nick Brown at Coke, he, you know, he said, well, he said echoed, you know, it was echoed by the industry. It's been a breakthrough year for sustainable packaging in the drinks industry. There's so much work being done to reduce and improve primary and secondary packaging. Um, and it's interesting when you look at these figures. Now, these are some figures that just kind of span, you know, the last couple of decades in the industry. You know, there has been a, a, a really impressive reduction in a lot of the weights and a lot of the... Um, you know, the different types of packaging from cans and plastics and bottles. But, you know, there's still a tremendous amount of packaging material being pumped into the environment. So although there's been some great strides made over the last few decades, we need to do so much more, go so much further, um, so much faster. Um, so when it comes to packaging, the key things that came out of research as this idea of being really open about consumer concerns about um, packaging. So you've got to do, do, sorry, this is really confusing me having two different screens. Um, consumers really care, basically, about packaging. There's some great stats out there you know, that really demonstrate that they support things like bottle return schemes. They're trying to reduce their plastic. They're trying, they feel really guilty about using plastic. Um, but companies are doing lots behind the scenes to address this. But the, the difficulty sometimes comes when we're not open about the journey that we're on. So sometimes because we haven't found a solution yet, you don't say anything or you just do a knee-jerk reaction and do something quickly because consumers hate plastic. But what really needs to happen is a very carefully considered, um, you know, uh, considered uh, process where you look at what is the, pro the product we're using now, how can it be changed, what's the difference, doing those life cycle analysis bringing in the stakeholders and finding the way that can take the journey, uh, the consumer on the journey with you and make sure that the change that you implement is genuinely a more sustainable one. Um, so tenants did, a, um, did this with their, oh, hang on. Tenants did this when they moved from plastic to um, cardboard for their, um, their packs. And they did tons of research. You know, they did all the benchmarking and they did best practice analysis and consumer research. And then they worked out that moving from this non-recyclable plastic to cardboard was, for the time being, the best, um, most positive uh, environmental solution that they could, they could, they could implement. Um, and the consumer response to that has therefore been really positive because they engage everyone and very open about the journey. But when I spoke to Martin, he also acknowledged that, you know, maybe this isn't going to be the, the best thing in another five years' time. You know, these things is a massive investment to get here, so... Hopefully, it will continue to be, you know, a great choice. But as the waste management structure changes, so could the most sustainable choices. Um, another thing that came through really clearly in um, the whole packaging sphere is all the legislation that's coming. Um, and, of course, in many different forms, from an incentive producer responsibility to the deposit return scheme, um, you know, the fact that packaging without a minimum 30% recycled content is going to be taxed by April 2022, that there isn't necessarily enough recycled plastics at the moment to, um, to meet that demand. So, you know, how are we going to structure that? How can we increase that, uh, you know, square that circle? The whole landscape is changing so dramatically and so quickly. But the important thing is for the drinks industry, as somebody who necessarily uses a lot of packaging, is to absolutely be at the table and be having those conversations to make sure that, the solutions that are found and the legislation that is designed is fit for purpose and it actually does work. Um, and that's what the insiders that we spoke to all agreed that, you know, the, the role of business in society is to come up with the solution. Government's going to set the parameters by setting these bits and bits of regulation. First of all, as I said, you've got to help try and make that the best regulation to achieve this, the goals. But also, you know, businesses will either innovate and survive and thrive or fail. So it's up to business to make sure um, that we are dynamic in our approach to issues like sustainable packaging. Um, there's also so much confusion. There's different people saying different things, different you know, bodies making different statements about deposit return schemes and things. So it's really important for the industry to try and come together and find common ground and work out 
what is uh, the most helpful and um, appropriate way forward. Um, so another little example of um, something where a bit of uh, innovation in eco-design and packaging has managed to have a really big impact is the Carlsberg's, Carlsberg Snack Pack. So these were another um, uh, Sustainable Drinks Award winners. And they did an analysis. So this is, again, so important to always do an analysis and find out where your major impacts are. And they, they discovered that packaging was 40% of Carlsberg's footprint. So it's a key priority area to tackle. But they obviously didn't want to switch out plastic for something that could have more of an impact. So they did tons of research, tons of investment, of course. But uh, Snap Pack, where it's stuck together with these little things, is going to cut plastic by 75%. And that's 1,200 tonnes every year or 60 million plastic bags worth of plastic every year when it's rolled out. So, you know, it's, again, it's a really great way of somebody looking at something um, in a different way to find a good solution. Um, Waste is the next topic. So one thing that's really interesting about waste is this idea, so there's massive amounts of waste in the drinks industry. There's you know, 42 million tons of spent grain, 12 million tons of pomace, 200,000 um, tons of glass are sent by the bars, pubs and restaurants to landfill, and only 50% of glass containers are recycled. I mean, there's some really, really big impacts. But the important, interesting thing is, is that waste can become a big part of brand stories. So this is just a little, you know, as I said, we spoke to big players and to, to small people, but this, this was just kind of a fun, quirky thing, this garden cider company, which uses donated apples from 4,000 households to make cider. And, you know, that's, that's something that many big businesses obviously can't do. But again, it just shows a creativity in the way that people think about waste and waste streams and where you can get, um, where you can source from. Um, and, you know, there's lots of different people doing this. Obviously, Toast is very famous about their beer from bread um, and wanted apples into cider. Then we've got some of the bigger brands using their waste botanicals into beer, uh, paper from menus. So that was Bombay Sapphire. You know, there's lots of things going on and that can create lovely stories that you can share with your customers. Um, waste, you know, this is, again, something that the industry has been doing really well for a long time. But waste uh, can also power operations and make other products. And there was one study that found that um, actually that you could use the vineyard waste to power the vineyard itself. So it was cheaper than buying the power in to do this. And um, there was even enough to sell back to the grid. Um, there's also been tons of imaginative uses for spent grain. Um, used coffee grounds, berry pomace, you know, into fuels, into flavor compounds, into fibers, into, you know, all sorts of different ways that they can be used and you know obviously for each business it's going to be a totally different pathway and a totally different solution um, but it's really really exciting and, and again to always check is the waste stream that you've got because a lot of the time it does go to animal feed and there is a you know what appears to be quite a good usage for your waste you know but is that definitely for your product your waste stream is that the most sustainable option um, one interesting thing about the, um, the drinks industry is that um, spent grain can inadvertently help feed people when the um, spent grain is sent for animal feed. And actually, interestingly, the UN calculated that if all the food waste and um, drinks waste went to animal feed, that could help feed 3 billion people across the world. So that's quite dramatic. Obviously, again, you always have to check your own particular supply chain. Is that the right um, source, but it's just quite a powerful, um, uh, you know, story. And also, again, if you can check the facts to your own industry, that can be a really powerful story to share with consumers. Something that just routinely might happen could actually become a very engaging um, story. There's also massively increased pressure to redistribute. So somebody like Innocent, who has a product that you know could, you know, that is not um, contentious because it's not alcoholic that could be going to waste because it's getting near its shelf life have worked really hard and I think that you've succeeded in getting no no um yeah no waste landfill yeah almost so so you know so by looking at the way so I think one of the ways they've achieved that is by they send products off for redistribution a bit before they actually need to to make sure that they don't miss that window of being able to redistribute so they've taken a bit of a hit by doing that but they know that nothing is going to be wasted um the next topic is water. Now, the industry is massively um, 
water, oops, sorry, is uh, massively water um, intensive. Um, and there's some really stark predictions about uh, water scarcity in the coming years. And so it just absolutely needs to get more water efficient to ensure its own longevity because, uh, you know, most of the drinks brands represented here are, you know, luxury goods. And when it comes, push comes to shove, people aren't going to be happy about prioritising water use for something that we don't, we, we could choose to live without. So it's very, very important. Um, but the efforts have stepped up dramatically um, in recent times. So the first one is, um, is, as I said, it needs to become an absolute strategic priority within the organisation itself. And again, people, uh, this is this quote was again very representative of what the insiders said to us. You know, we need to change our approach in the industry. Sector has a lot of very visible water use. I mean, note, and they were, you know, again, everyone said to us, we are noticing the impacts of water stress. We've noticed it on our supply of the crops. It's actually happening here and now. We need to tackle this, and we are tackling it. Um, and you know, so this one, you know, as you can see, and weather patterns over the last two years also impact crops that are acquired by the manufacturers. So you know, this is not something that's happening in the future. It's something that's having an impact here today. Um, so, Ollie, you'll be pleased with this one. Um, oops, no, oh, don't get past it. Oh, there we go. So, um, uh, yes, yeah, so Adnams uh, in Suffolk, so they have less rainfall uh, than Jerusalem. So they uh, knew that looking after their water use was very important. So they put in a heat check exchanger, which halved their water use. And the standard ratio of, so their ratio of water to one litre of spirits went from 48 to 1 to 24 to 1. And for gin went to 60 to 1 to 30 to 1. So again, when you think the amount of water, you know, used, it's still you know, quite a high ratio, but my goodness, to actually dramatically cut it, that is a really big achievement and um, shows what can be done with the right interventions. Um, the other thing is, and this does come up repeatedly within all the categories, is, the, um, is this absolute necessity to set the challenging targets. So the industry standard uh, is around using 350 litres of water to make one litre of beer. Really uh, clear targets helped Carlsberg get to a market leading, so uh, I believe, uh, 290 litres of water per one litre of beer. And they're trying to get that down to 170 to one by 2030. So, you know, that's some quite stringent um, targets. Pernod Ricard has managed to commit to a 20% reduction by 2020. I believe it's uh, on its way to achieving that. And actually in some of their operations, like their Indian operations, they've already managed to achieve a 34% reduction. So people are really making some good headway here. But certification is really, really key as well in this and making sure that, um, that things are being absolutely done you know, in the correct way. And there's loads of water disclosure projects uh, that support reporting on water use and really help investors assess the risks and the opportunities that companies face in relation to water, which can be really useful as well in helping make the business case for taking action and investing in those expensive bits of kit, which will help you tackle it. Um, so there's the UN CEO water mandate, the carbon disclosure, water disclosure project, and the global reporting initiatives are some places to start. Um, so we have also talked a little bit already about the importance of the supply chain. Um, but water use in the supply chain is also massively important. And it's really important to have that global approach. You know, will you be able to continue producing water there in the future? Ethically, should you continue to produce water there in the future? For example, when South Africa was having the water shortages in 2018 and day zero was approaching when the water authorities would turn off the water supply, Toastale was sitting there going, what are we going to do about this? And had actually decided that if that happened, they were going to start bottling water and giving that out to people to make sure people had drinking water. So, you know, these are questions that you need to have your answers ready and also be looking long term about changing patterns and changing water availability. Um, you know, one of our insiders said, well, we set, when we set the strategy, there was a realisation that if we don't act now, we're not going to have the grain and we're not going to have the water we need to brew. In the UK, predictions are that we have 25 years before demand for water outstrips supply. In other markets, this will be even faster. Um, so one really, really useful tool to uh, address this is water footprinting because it can help identify the indirect and 
direct water use and the different types of water use, you know, water withdrawn, grey water going back into the system, water from the soil, etc. And, and the thing is, as well, is that suppliers, you know, the industry was very open about the fact often, you know, they're very busy with the day to day of producing their crop being a supplier. They don't necessarily, you know, they, they know it's something they should think about, but they don't always have the capacity or the, uh, the ability to prioritise it. So working with the supply chain to help them do water footprinting and help them identify those areas that are, are really, uh, you know, need to be targeted is a really, really important thing. And there's some great um, tools that can be used, like the Farm Sustainability Assessment SI platform, which is a pre-competitive space which allows industry to come together and tackle sustainability initiatives. So people like Innocent use it with thousands of farmers across the globe, and it, that helps them to review lots of different criteria, but also their water footprint, and it's made a big difference. And they've used uh, these kind of platforms in the Donana um, National Park, which is a really ecologically sensitive wetland. And they've been working on this project for five years in that area, working with loads of the other strawberry um, growers and loads of people buying strawberries to the, from the area to really help people with irrigation techniques and looking at all the different ways and making people really buy in to preserving water in that area uh, and have made a massive difference. So it's, again, you know, looking at how you can get engagement boots on the ground in that area of your supply chain and work with it to, to tackle these issues to ensure, you know, longevity into the future. Um, another little uh, example here from the industry is um, Petroleum Tequila. They pioneered a reverse osmosis technique to help tackle this massive amount of water waste that you get with every uh, litre produced of tequila. So they've managed to pretty much recycle all of it now. They've got 70% of it's now going into clean water that goes around the system now to cool everything during distillation. And then it goes out to water the fields. The remaining 30% is combined with the use of agave fibers to create compost. And then the compost is used in the veg garden, which then helps to feed the staff. So it's a really lovely circular system they managed to create. They've looked at all the different touch points and managed to also create a really wonderful brand story as well. Uh, we're going to rattle on now to uh, energy and emissions is our fifth category. Um, so the drinks industry is obviously massively energy intensive. The process of uh, the processing of fruits and grains and the complex distilling processes require a good deal of energy, um, such as the heating and cooling of stills and then the transportation of raw materials into finished goods plus packaging and waste. Uh, they all increase the carbon footprint of the industry. Um, and obviously, as we uh, probably all know in this room, because you're uh, very aware people, the global demand for energy is expected to increase by 50% by 2030. And food and drink manufacturing account for 5.3% of that uh, industrial energy use. So it's a really important driver to make sure, uh, both from a competitive um, perspective, but also from a, um, a planetary perspective, to really look at managing that energy use. Um, in fact, there's a stat out there that suggests that the alcohol manufacturers in the States release the same amount of emissions as 1.9 million households, um, and, which is a bit bonkers when you think this is an industry that creates all this waste that actually could be turned into fuel um, in, in some instances. So, you know, smarter brewing, fermenting, juicing, roasting and distilling has witnessed tons of technological advances uh, which improve energy management throughout the process. So uh, there's a lot of, um, of areas where action can be taken. So the, the points that I just wanted to highlight uh, today, as I said, there's lots more in the report, is again, you know, we need to set science-based targets. And um, these are increasingly being adopted, but at the end of the day, if it's not in line with the science, you know, is it enough? Are we actually going to achieve what we need to achieve, which is a stable climate? If it's not, going to help work towards that, then really it needs to be re rethought and, and made much more stronger and stringent. Um, and the leaders in the industry really are setting those zero carbon uh, footprint targets, and they're aligning their strategies with the SDGs and setting interim targets and goals, and really, as I've mentioned some of the examples earlier, you know, aligning it with what people are doing and really trying to translate that to people within the business and also to consumers outside of it. Um, so. 
And we talked to Peter Stratham at the sustainability manager at Carlsberg. He said, you know, our aim is a zero carbon footprint. And within that, we set science-based targets to the 1.5 degrees level globally. The company has aligned its strategy with the SDGs. The targets end 2030 with interim targets of 2022. This ranges across the value chains with a target of zero carbon emissions from its breweries by 2030 and reducing the beer in hand footprint, which is the whole value chain from the farm to the fridge by 30% reduction by 2030. So you can see how people are really translating that uh, across the business. Um, the, other, the other part of energy and emissions is this, this um, approach of tackling carbon in all its forms, because um, you know, beverages, you know, as I said, we said earlier, they're really intense, they're always heating, they're always cooling. Um, but there's lots of different ways, apart from that, sort of, there's, there's that whole core energy use that can be tackled. But there's also looking at the, the packaging, the waste, the embodied carbon, you know, that example earlier that the plastic wrap around the beer cans was actually responsible, the packaging was responsible for 40% of a beer's footprint, you know, this can be quite dramatic. Um, so we don't want to just you know, look at the obvious things, look at all the things that come into play. You know, again, I'll mention it later, but food is responsible for 30% of global emissions when you look at food um, production distribution and land use change for farming. You know, so much of what we use is agriculture, is grain, is food. You know, so looking at how we, you know, use that efficiently, not wasting it, that's all ways that we are tackling carbon. Um, and uh, there's, you know, this, this, uh, there's so much acknowledgement within the industry that renewable energy as well, because of all the waste we produce on plant or the heat that we produce on plant, that these can be harnessed in really effective ways to help um, make the industry uh, more energy efficient and to tackle its emissions. Um, of course, there's a real challenge. Each uh, particular situation will need its own solution. But it's, again, just really trying to focus for your business, you know, what is what is that right solution and making sure you've done the science and, and found and found it. Um, so I think I've said everything on that slide actually. Um, so the other thing that's been really um, wonderful, you know, and people told us about really cool, some really cool technological solutions um, that could really help. So sometimes, you know, the, the Something simple as uh, tackling ventilation can save, you know, some of the, the guys we spoke to said that tackling ventilation had saved, you know, 600,000 kilowatt hours uh, of energy use per year, which was the same as um, powering several hundred homes. And upgrading the software on a pasteurizer saved about 300,000 kilowatt hours. So, you know, just doing some really, um, you know, sort of housekeeping -y things, there's lots of good technologies out there and ways of, of looking at things. Um, and then the great thing is, with many, the same as with many sustainability initiatives, is there's all these side benefits as well. So, you know, taking the pressure off um, members of staff to have to monitor temperature, to monitor ventilation, you know, can really help make that a more pleasant experience for the staff. And it can smooth out all the human error as well. Um, the next section is uh, social impact. Um, so, True sustainability obviously incorporates being socially as well as environmentally responsible. And the Duke's industry offers a massive variety of expertise and systems that put it in a really unique position to help um, both local and global communities. Um, it can start, of course, with its own employees, both ensuring that they prosper and progress in an optimal working environment, but also helping them to make a difference to the world around them through volunteer programs. Uh, they can also reach out to support their immediate neighbourhoods or with their supply chain, which stretches often throughout the whole world. Um, and they can also consider how they can use their resources to create maximum impact in a way that makes most sense for their, um, for their particular organisation. So this is, it brings us to um, one of the, sort of the key points around social impact is this, this came out again and again. The most important thing about the programs was they had to support brand aims and identity. So, and one of the, so we had some great examples of this. So, the pubs are a massive part of the community. Um, so, anybody who worked in those environments told us about some great initiatives they're doing. Like tenants have a massive, uh, but brilliant uh, campaign called this pint and plan session. So, they get people together to talk about climate change. And rather than that just being something they always talk about, they're trying to actually turn those ideas and advocacy into action. Um, we also had Mitchells and Butler talking about how they were really working with their local communities to redistribute food, to 
engage people in their areas that could be quite poor and quite deprived and really help them in a tangible, meaningful way. Um, Red Bull, you know, like many um, beverage companies, you know, litter is a big issue. So they work with organizations like Keep a Good Fit and Britain Tidy to work on things like litter, which again is something that's very relevant, very close, and you can have a big impact. Um, there's also been other great areas where businesses have said, you know, we've tackled, so something that's been tackled quite well by um, the industry here in the UK is something like drink driving. But some companies have looked at actually exporting that abroad, you know, some of the learning that we have here. So Pernod Ricard has have got some safer youth pilots that they've been running in other parts of the world like uh, Vietnam, and they've managed to help reduce road deaths by up to 32% through those programs. So again, it's, you know, looking at the initiatives that have been done locally, can we use the expertise and export that in a way that's meaningful and helpful to our communities around the world? Um, another little example um, that I thought was a, a nice one that really shows, you know, how you can tie your brand into something that's very integral to your product. Obviously, we had, when we talked about water, we talked about the 350 litres of water making one litre of beer. Well, Brugge has decided to make uh, that water use a central part of its whole brand and its ethos by putting 100% of its projects to funding clean water um, across uh, Africa. And through this, they've managed to help bring clean water to 60,000 people, which is a fantastic achievement. Well, only have they done that, but they've used their... Um, their sort of their reach to try and you know bring other parts of the industry on board and help create awareness within their customer base. So using a social media, and they've got 50 breweries and 80 million people um, to raise awareness of the 80 million people living without clean water. So again, it's just another little example of, of how that social impact can be drawn into the brand, drawn into you know, showing how it's relevant, and that creates a really powerful, um, powerful story and also the powerful impact. Um, Another thing that was, you know, really, really important for the drinks industry is mental health. And this is something that has um, not had an enormous amount of attention, but really deserves it. Um, this ranges from the people, you know, pulling the pints to the people brewing them. It is a particularly male-dominated industry, and this is probably one of the reasons why um, it's been a bit of an issue. But it, it really does need to shift to having a lot more training to deal with identifying mental health problems for staff, for teams to be able to know what to do, um, and to allowing people to start speaking up. It can be very lonely being a brewer at times or working in the brewing industry. Um, so we really want to make sure that the people in our businesses are supported with, with any um, you know, depression or addictions that they may have, um, and that we, we, we don't allow that to be a sort of a, a bit of a festering sore. Um, the, uh, the next category is raw materials. So obviously, um, around 70% of the EU's agricultural output is bought by food and drink manufacturers. So it's imperative, you know, that we maintain biodiversity and that sustainable farming techniques are encouraged. Uh, the sector is particularly vulnerable to the impact of climate change. Um, so you know, with a massive increased pressure on food production, and we're going to require 50% more food anyway to feed a growing population, we've got to make sure that all the, the grain and the, and the raw materials that are coming out for the, uh, for the drinks industry are, are absolutely as efficient as they can be and using as little water and looking after the soil and the land and the communities that produce them. Um, um, and really key to this is looking at your supply chain. And we mentioned as well before talking about working in partner, partnership and collaboration. But, you know, the supply chain is your brand and they have so much expertise that needs to be harnessed. It, you know, looking at all the different impacts in that supply chain, the water, the energy, the use, the soil quality, the workers' rights, looking at it and identifying those hotspots and querying, you know, every single material that you have. Like we were just having a good conversation about the cardboard boxes that, are, you know, a spirit bottle might come in. It has that got foil on it. Does it need to have foil on it? Because that might prevent it being recycled. You know, all every single part of your product and supply chain, you know, look at those raw materials and question them. Now, obviously, consumers aren't going to expect that every single problem has been solved and every single material is sustainable. But what you need to do is be making sure that you're asking the questions and you're on the journey and you're thinking about how those might be tackled in the future if it's not your number one priority now. And uh, within this 
supply chain is this absolutely valuable asset of the supplier expertise. The businesses that were getting really good traction on the ground with their supply chain had really harnessed their critical subject matter experience and facilitated knowledge sharing. So we, we found again and again, I'm going to give you a couple of examples here where people had really looked at getting their supply chain together, helping them tackle the issues, finding ways to and platforms to share the knowledge. Um, so as uh, Jacqueline said to me from AB InBev, we're not interested in keeping this expertise a secret or competitive advantage, but sharing it for the betterment of the world. Um, so they have meeting beats and all sorts of different things. And one of the things that they do um, is for Budweiser, they have these, um, what they call sort of Bud Farmers Days. So they procure from a vast number of farmers, 50,000 farmers, and they put that as a contractual obligation that they need to reduce those emissions. And they provide agronomists visits every year, access to satellite weather patterns to help them plan and be most efficient in their growing processes, um, and funds to help them if they have uh, um, ways that they need to increase their productivity and resilience. Um, and then they have events where they can all get together and share ideas, experience, network, you know, look at, you know, uh, look at what's going on in the industry. But the really fascinating things about this is doing this has allowed them to go having no UK barley source to 100% British barley in five years. So this has had a really big uh, impact on, on what, you know, their uh, production, um, their supply chain. Um, now, this is a, another one that we uh, came up again is the idea of... Uh, clients and consumers and actually there's a good conversation I was having before about saying you know there's such an important piece of the puzzle what clients and consumers think about um, about drinks but today's purchases are incredibly switched on to environmental and socially conscious companies and they will act or support those brands and those companies according to how they're perceived so you know with the sugar tax and a shift in alcohol consumption habits there are increasingly interesting times for the industry and it's really important to be very open about what's happening. Um, some, some big, uh, some fascinating trends that we noticed when we did the research. Um, so just as a little anecdote, uh, Matthew Clark uh, invited me to stand on, go on their sustainability stand to, to, during their recent show. And it was all people wanted to talk about. It was so interesting. This whole plant-based explosion that's happened across food service is actually having quite a big impact in the drinks industry. People were not asking about, you know, how uh, the, the drinks products had been produced and what, you know, um, efficiencies were happening in the production process. They wanted to talk about was the wine vegan or vegetarian? You know, that was what they felt their customers were asking them. Was it plant-based? How can they talk about plant-based? And so this is really interesting that this is having an impact for those types of products like wine that do have um, a, a meat, an animal-based component. Um, but it just is also interesting how that can tie in um, to other trends. And, and this has been um, really noticed as well, the 18% increase in low alcohol, uh, non-alcoholic drink sales. And I think what's so interesting is the market you know, has done some amazing responses to this. There's some really great new um, brands out there, some great new drinks. And I think what's really clever is people are doing some very... Um, smart things to mimic that sort of that having a drink occasion when I went to uh, and have, it's, like, it's like buses I haven't been to the Ivy in years I went to one last month and I'm going to coming here again this week it's amazing but I went to the Ivy and I had this wonderful cocktail of non-alcoholic drinks that I could choose from and one of them when it came it was you know it, it was served to me as if it was you know sort of a, a, an alcoholic cocktail with my little bottle of mixer on the side that I could add and mix together and you know the whole experience was very much this is a premium experience i'm not having some you know boring you know lime and soda um, and that's what the industry said you know there's this massive shift massive uplift but even though the industry is doing some amazing things it's not reacting fast enough so it's an area of real growth and real opportunity um, and you know people were talking about it you know from whitbreads to everybody they were just talking about you know the the increase in their drink sales but also what the consumers were telling them you know, in pub or on, in, in, um, in all their channels. Um, and a nice sort of example of this, which is another one of the um, uh, Footprint Drinks Awards. Uh, I think they won, won an award or runner-up. Anyway, but this, this, is a, this is another one of these. Um, it's a lovely non-alcoholic gin. 
um, or gin drink, uh, the dry distiller, and they basically have fully distilled it to give it this lovely um, London dry gin flavor, but it's sugar-free and alcohol-free. So it's, you know, it's great for people on a health kick, it's great for people who are pregnant or driving. Um, so they're sort of capitalizing on this opportunity, these sort of big shifts in the industry towards healthier options, towards lower or no alcohol options, um, and it's high-end and healthy. So there's, but there's so much more space um, in that whole area. Um, another thing that really, really came through in so many of the interviews and other research is this shift between good products and good brands. You know, consumers, they are becoming quite evolved when it comes to sustainability. They don't just want a, an element of the product or an element of the um, brand to be sustainable. They want a good brand overall. They want a brand that's committed and they want a brand that's doing things, you know, in many, many areas that they can trust, you know. Uh, Roz, who is over there, said, you know, we've seen a really strong and growing consumer trend moving away from buying good products and moving towards buying products from good businesses. Uh, this was uh, replicated in the Just Drinks report that came out recently. They said consumer purchasing decisions are increasingly being based on brands' environmental or social record. Withholding significant information or risk reporting on these matters could be said to be every bit as reprehensible as misleading advertising. So people are just really wanting to put their money with businesses that they can identify with and you know and, and they're much more likely as well to take you to task when you get it wrong and you know really harangue you on social media and shame you so the good you know it's really important to be very honest about the journey but you know about what you're doing and what you're not doing to make sure that people um don't think there's any greenwash going on there um the other thing that's really important for um the consumer uh, segment of, of uh, the drinks industry is the role that we play, the drinks industry plays in helping the consumer do the right thing because, you know, today I've talked about a whole bunch of stuff the industry has done across, you know, these eight different categories and hopefully touched on most things that are happening. But at the end of the day, if we make our packaging the most recyclable package, packet, you know, um, bottle or whatever it is ever, and it goes in the landfill bin to go to landfill, you know, that that has not gone on its right journey. That has not necessarily become a more sustainable option. So we've got to also absolutely take on the responsibility of, of educating the consumer and helping the consumer on the journey, making it really clear what should happen to that bottle. What is the responsible way to consume that product? You know, if, we, if the consumer, and you know, um, it's not always easy. Of course, we don't want to be patronizing to our consumers, but it's really important to find those messages that work and you know sometimes even the way something is designed can help people know I need to crush this or I need to you know they, they can actually um, have non-verbal cues that help people know what to do with it. Um, so and actually what's quite interesting is um, the, there's also ways to work with government as well to help uh, promote greener actions and there's a really kind of uh, interesting example that comes from Sweden where they use regulation because they worked out basically that glass bottles that accounted for 35% of the wine sold, but 84% of the packaging emissions. So they changed the regulation to drive a rise in bag-in-the-box wine, and that's led to a 55% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions compared to glass bottles. So again, you know, there's other ways that are less obvious that we can work with industry, um, with government or with other players that are out there to help make these changes a reality.